going to be looking at some of those promises that we have in Christ Jesus in the book of Exodus. Exodus 33, we're actually going to look at three chapters, but I'm just going to read right now from Exodus 33 and verses 7 through 11. Hear are the inerrant word of God. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire that as we understand it, that your spirit would quicken it to our hearts so that we might live it. Father, be glorified as we continue to respond to your scripture, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we saw that no matter how bad a culture may get, God's grace is sufficient to turn things around, and there are two stages to this turning around of a person or a family or a church or a culture, and the first stage uh, we call revival, and the second stage flows out of revival. We speak of that as being reformation, and I want to point out that those two terms really technically should only be used of a Christian uh, culture or a church. Uh, if you're talking about pagans who have never heard the gospel, you speak of missions. Uh, they're entering into the gospel for the first time, but revival and reformation are a turning back of things that have died, and we really want reformation uh, as we uh, see this progress uh, in, in the scriptures. Uh, if uh, you look at the reformations that are listed in First and Second Kings, you will find that all of them start with a revival of things that were dying, or perhaps in some cases had already been dead for quite uh, some time, and we desperately need a genuine revival in the church of Jesus Christ today. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a biblical worldview of what revival is all about, because there's a lot of confusion on this subject. So, for example, when you hear people say, well, we're, we're scheduling a revival next week, they're really misusing that biblical term uh, for revival because we cannot schedule revivals. It is a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit that He brings when and where uh, He pleases. Uh, when I speak of revival, I'm not speaking of the man-centered a kind of revivalism that happened in a number of different places in the Second Great Awakening in America. And, and let me just explain that briefly. The First Great Awakening, uh, even though it had some extremes, largely it was an incredible uh, work of God's Holy Spirit. The, the Second Great Awakening did have some parts of the country where there was genuine revival happening, for example, in Yale, 
I think it was a sovereign work of God's Spirit. But there were uh, regions and parts of America that you look at some of those camp meetings and it was extremism, it was hyper-emotionalism, and it was anything but, uh, anything but uh, revival. And, and just as one example, you can count the number of illegitimate births that happened nine months after some of these camp meetings uh, had. Emotionalism, but not really a genuine work uh, of God's Spirit. When some people think of revival, they immediately think of Charles Finney, who wrote a book on that subject. Now, I know this is controversial, and it's no intention of, uh, on, of my part to offend anybody, but I'm trying to distinguish what I'm going to be talking about from Exodus, a genuine revival of God's Spirit, from a lot of things that take the name uh, revival. And I do not believe that, um, that uh, Ch- uh, Charles Finney's uh, revivals were genuine uh, biblical revival. Uh, in fact, uh, when I, you read his book and his instructions to pastors, he believed that anybody could produce revival if you structured the meetings correctly. Uh, and he had everything in his meetings structured very, very carefully, down to the timing of the altar call and the way in which you would word things and the kind of music that you would use, even the, the type of instrument that you would use. He preferred the piano. It was percussive. He said it was much better for driving people to the altar. And you look at the instructions that he gave and how he crafted things, what it really amounted to was psychological and emotional uh, manipulation uh, on, a, on, on a large scale. Now, were there people who got saved under Finney's ministry? Absolutely, yes, there were. I mean, God works despite our... Our, 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 our mistakes and our feeble, uh, uh, our feeble uh, ministries, they did. But several studies have shown that the aftermath of Finney's revivalism left huge swaths of Eastern America highly resistant to the gospel. And the reason they were resistant is the people became so offended with the manipulation that had been going on that they didn't want to listen to any preaching of the gospel. Uh, and we speak of these as the burned-out districts Uh, of um, uh, the eastern uh, seaboard. True revival is God-centered. It produces holiness. It impacts the culture around you. It makes people intensely hungering after the Word of God, uh, etc., etc. When I speak of biblical revival, uh, I uh, for sure am not talking about the so-called revivals in Pensacola, Florida, or Brownsville revival, or the Toronto revival. Ian Murray would speak of all of those things as revivalism, uh, not true revival. And I'm not going to go into the detail of what some of the horrible things that go on in some of those uh, revival meetings. Some of it actually is downright demonic. When you investigate it, you look at it, it, it's really strange. But this morning, I want to give you a biblical philosophy of revival, and I think you'll see it it's quite different from what goes under the name of revival revival today. Now let me make one more comment before I dive into our passage. There are some Reformed people who have overreacted against revivalism and all of the dangers that go along with that, and they've thrown out revival altogether, and I think that is so short-sighted. Revival is a biblical term. Ezra 8 excuse me, Ezra 9 calls for revival. And just because it's been misused by manipulators does not mean we should throw out the term revival. 
Uh, Psalm 80 speaks of the possibility of revival of the church even during times of great apostasy. Uh, Psalm 119 speaks over and over and over again about the need for personal revival in our lives when we have uh, lost the the power of the Holy Spirit. We have lost this uh, desire and hunger for holiness. We're not serious about the Word of God or perhaps when our children, our great-grandchildren are not genuine believers. They're in the church outwardly, uh, but they're not uh, true believers. And it speaks of this need uh, for revival. So it is a very uh, biblical uh, concept. And the reason I wanted to give this follow-up sermon to last week's sermon is as we are praying and as we are anticipating revival in America, uh, we want to make sure we're not sidelined by the dangers of revivalism on the one hand or on the other hand, that we're merely content with outward change. And we see both going on uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. Exodus chapters 32 through 34, I think, are a marvelous introduction to what constitutes the essence of revival. We're not going to talk about everything that we could talk about, about revival, but this is the essence of revival. And the impact of that revival can be seen through the end of the book of Numbers. What caused more and more Israelites in chapter 33 to flow to that tent prayer meeting way outside the camp? Nobody called them to go out uh, to that prayer meeting. It was a work of God's Holy Spirit that was drawing them there. Uh, What is it that brought holiness and worship throughout the camp in chapter 33? What made Joshua drop all of his responsibilities and stay in the tabernacle and spend all of his time in prayer. It's really a a strange, remarkable thing that was going on uh, in his life. Normally, the only time that a person drops everything and devotes his whole concentration to one thing is when his house is going up in flames or his life is going up in flames. And that's exactly what Exodus 32 said was happening to Israel. God had threatened to destroy the entire nation. There were actually thousands that were killed in the last few verses of uh, chapter 32. Uh, Israel was in danger of going up in flames, uh, so to speak. And yet, here is the weird thing about it. The nation was not aware of that. They were oblivious to the danger that they were in. One of the first things that happens in a revival is a sudden awareness of how serious the situation is in a person's own life, maybe in his family, his church, and in his nation. Uh, Moses had called for repentance and prayer repeatedly prior to this, and nothing happened. In fact, you read the earlier chapters, it's almost as if the people think that Moses is just too uptight. Uh, That's the way they treated his calls to repentance and, and to prayer. Historically, the greatest revivals have come when the church has been at its lowest ebb, spiritually undiscerning, and totally uncaring about the things of God, just like Israel was in chapter 32. And I don't think there can be any denying the fact that America is in a similar state of serious spiritual uh, trouble. And yet, just like Israel in Exodus chapter 32... The church is oblivious to the danger. You know, you look at the solutions that churches talk about at various conferences, and it's like putting a tiny Band-Aid on a patient who has terminal cancer. 
the band-aid is not going to help a great deal. They're not pressing for the deep repentance over the serious issues that are facing the church, and I could give you hundreds of such issues that are facing the church of Jesus Christ, and I have in the past, but I'll just remind you of one. Despite government schools having turned been turned into indoctrination centers for androgyny, feminism, relativism, occultism, indoctrination in the techniques of promiscuity, instruction and evolution, all kinds of horrible things. What's been happening is that the majority, a huge number of Christians, most Christians are sending their children to those government schools to be discipled. And yet they're oblivious to how serious this situation is or what an affront this is to Almighty God. And it's no wonder to me that the church is in such serious trouble. What happened in Exodus 32? Well, Moses was gone for a long period of time. Because of pressure from the people, Aaron allowed the people to engage in idolatry. Actually, he made the calf for them. He had a lousy excuse, you know. Uh, when uh, Moses was asking what it went on, he said, well, they gave me their gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Yeah, uh, he was trying to downplay his involvement. But in verse 6 of Exodus 32, it says, Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rush Dooney reflects most commentators on this passage when he says this, The golden calf was a fertility cult object, and it is worshipped with sexual rites. The word translated from the Hebrew as play can have an innocent meaning, being a word for laughter, but it is also used sexually, as in Genesis 26, 8, Isaac was playing with Rebekah, his wife. In Exodus 32, 1 through 14, it clearly means the sexual rights of a fertility cult. And you look at that and you wonder, well, how in the world could Aaron and the Levites have been so blind that they would engage in such rank idolatry and sexual immorality. Uh, we tend to be blind to our own sins. You, you look at the, the pastors and the churches across this nation, and you will see a similar blindness over a whole host of issues. I mean, just here in Omaha itself, if you look at the number of evangelical churches that have members who I personally know have sent their children to have abortions, the church ought to be crying out to the Lord, ought to be blushing uh, at the, 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 the kind of sin that we are characterized by. I think chapter 32, verse 25, describes the church of today perfectly. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies... The church today does not have the restraint of the law of God. They've got all kinds of theologies as to why we can cast away God's law. Certainly the elders do not restrain them through a church discipline. And so the church has become impotent before the world. But what's encouraging to me is that it was in that context, that horrible context, that God sent revival, especially to the younger generation. And as I mentioned Uh, earlier, historically, revivals have come when the church was at her lowest ebb. Now, here's the scary counterpart to that, though. When the church is at its lowest ebb, if revival does not come, sometimes God gives up the church entirely to generations of darkness. 
And this has happened over and over again in church history. You look at Africa, and people don't even realize that Africa once had a very vibrant, flourishing church. The greatest theologian in church history, Augustine, was an African. A lot of people don't realize that. He was an African, and the church was flourishing in Africa, and yet that church, after several decades, began to have some of the same kinds of sins and attitudes to the law of God that the church in America has, and they came to a crossroads, and revival did not happen. And what eventually happened is that God plucked up their candlestick. He vomited them out, and Africa became the dark continent for over a thousand years. The same thing has happened in country after country in Europe. And to me, this teaches me the lesson that you cannot presume upon God, oh, well, there's going to be revival eventually in America. There can be a place where God just shunts aside the church in that region for a long period of time. So we should not uh, take it uh, for granted. Uh, Think of what would have happened if Moses had left God alone. We're, We're standing at a crossroads. And I'm saying, don't leave God alone. Take Isaiah's uh, call to pray, pray, pray seriously. But what would have happened? Verse 10, God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Israel would have been destroyed. But Moses did not leave God alone because God had put into Moses a consuming desire for revival and it stirred him up to pray and to say, Lord, we must have revival. Please spare your church. There is hope for America. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to preach on the characteristics of revival. When there are people who have the kind of passion that Moses had, Uh, to turn to God. Awesome things can happen. And what I want to do this morning, I want to intersperse the sermon uh, with songs, asking God to bring revival to His church by faith, saying, Lord, we want uh, what You have promised in Your Word is possible. We're asking for it. And also uh, offering up some uh, prayers to God. It's definitely not going to be your normal sermon. We're going to break it up uh, uh, unlike uh, our normal sermons. But let me interrupt the sermon right now, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord God Almighty, uh, Lord of revivals, the one who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and mercy, uh, we look to you for help. We need your help to see that things are serious in our own lives. Uh, We need your help to see the sinfulness of sin. Uh, We need your spirit to show us fathers where we have gone astray and to show Uh, us mothers where we have failed you. Our work in those of us who are children to know ourselves as you see us and to repent. Uh, We confess that our nation stands before you deserving your wrath and judgment and we ourselves feel totally, totally unworthy of your mercy. Uh, We confess the sins of lukewarmness and apathy and prayerlessness and worldliness on the part of, of believers. Uh, We acknowledge before you the wickedness of our society and its deserving of judgment. And we stand in to to confess the awful affront uh, to you which is represented in the the drug epidemic and the drunkenness, the moral rottenness in the entertainment field, the gang violence, the increase of homosexuality, the hostility to your word, 
uh, in the schools, the, the crime increases of our land, uh, the lack of moral character and national leadership. We ask forgiveness and mercy for the religious sins of liberalism and the too, too often harsh, bitter criticism and the lack of love and contentious spirit of Bible-believing churches. Uh, we grieve with you over the awful rise of interest in the occult and the open worship of Satan by wicked and deceived people. Uh, may you judge not this nation with wrath and fury as upon Sodom, but judge it with a mighty outpouring of conviction of sin. May sinners groan under the burden of their guilt until the people cry out as they did at Pentecost, uh, what shall we do to be saved? Uh, we recognize that Satan and the kingdom of darkness have plotted and strategized against revival with a relentless effort. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we smash and pull down all the strongholds that Satan has erected to hinder revival. We pray the focus of the mighty victory of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ directly against Satan's plans to hinder revival. By virtue of our position in Christ, we pull down Satan's strongholds of religious loyalties that blind and bind so many. We pull down his strongholds of prayerlessness and carelessness with the Word of God. And we claim back for the Lord Jesus Christ the ground Satan is claiming as a means of hindering revival. And we affirm that Satan's plans were fully defeated through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask for the Holy Spirit to grant wisdom and discernment to the leaders of revival chosen by you to lead. May this revival for which we pray be greater than any that has ever come before it. Uh, we pray, Father, it would not just be revival, it would be thoroughgoing reformation in the society as a whole. But we ask that you would revive the things that are dying or have died within the church of Jesus Christ. May you purify the church. May you bring multitudes into the fold from all over the world. We need you, Father. We need you. Uh, we, we need you if we are to see the seriousness of our state. We need you if we are to receive revival. Revive your church, O Lord. We ask this all, and we bring it before you uh, with praise and thanksgiving for what you will achieve through your redemptive judgments. And we pray this in the merit and in the worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's take a look at the marks of revival. The first mark that God's Spirit has been poured into the life of the church is that people begin to recognize the true, serious condition of their sinfulness. You know, the human heart has got an enormous capacity for self-deception and to rationalize our sins and to not think they're the, that, that, that big of a deal. Uh, we've got an enormous capacity to become comfortable with sin and to downplay its seriousness. But when God comes in power, what happens is the church sweeps those things away and does not want anything to come between them and God. They see the seriousness of their sin. We see sin as sin. We see God's righteousness as being righteous. And uh, I'll just give you one example here, Exodus 30, verse 4. It says, when the people heard this distressing news, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the first time, Israel began to recognize how far they had strayed from God. Now, they may have, uh, for the first time, recognized 
that they were in sin. I doubt it. I think they probably knew they were in sin. They just didn't care about it. But even if they did recognize the sinfulness of what they had done before, for the first time, it was distressing news. For the first time, it gripped them. And we see this in revivals and reformations of the past. For example, George Whitfield, uh, he testifies, and so did John Wesley. They testified that they preached exactly the same way before, during, and after the revival. They didn't change their preaching, but when God's Spirit swept through those colonies, suddenly the people became overwhelmed with an awareness of their sinfulness and of God's judgment uh, that was uh, uh, about to come upon them. And they groaned under the burden of their sin. In fact, they were groaning long before Whitfield even came into their territories. People were drawn like magnets to his preaching despite the fact he was preaching the terrifying realization that they were in danger of being consumed by God's wrath. And it really is hard to explain, but you read the literature of that period and you can see this was pervasive. It was everywhere. Uh, God's Spirit was sweeping through uh, those colonies. Same was true of Jonathan Edwards. He preached sinners in the hands of an angry God the month before, little effect, no effect. But when he preached it at Enfield, the Spirit of God came upon them in such power and took those words into their lives, and they had such a strong sense of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, they were undone. It's like they lost all sense of their surroundings, and they felt like they were literally slipping into hell. They felt as if they were in the very presence of a God of judgment who was ready to send them to the depths of hell. John 16, verse 8 says, This is one of the works of the Spirit to, quote, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So when you see people inside the church and outside the church coming under that conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of God's judgment, you know that there might be the beginnings of revival happening uh, in that situation because this is one of, the, the, one of the marks of revival. The facade is taken away and people see the seriousness of where they're at. Uh, it's an awesome work of grace. The second evidence of revival was that the people recognized for the first time that God had left them. They didn't just see their own awfulness. They saw God's displeasure and His absence. Do you remember what happened to the church of Laodicea in uh, Revelation chapter 3? Um, Christ had left the church. He was outside the church knocking on the door. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He was not even inside that church. And yet the odd thing about it was that the church didn't recognize it. They thought everything was hunky-dory. They thought everything was splendid in their walk with God and themselves. They had no recognition of the fact that God had left. And the same was really true in Exodus chapter 32 uh, of the people of Israel. Um, God was not with them. And he had already told Moses in verse 3, I will not go up in your midst. And to symbolize his departure, his glory cloud actually moved away from the tabernacle, which was right in the middle of the camp. His glory cloud moved and went outside, way outside of the camp. In fact, let's go ahead and let's read uh, beginning at verse 7. Exodus 33, beginning at verse 7. Moses took his tent, and I want you to notice it's his tent. A lot of people think, they, they, they confuse the, 
the, the, the tabernacle uh, of God for this tabernacle of meeting. But the tabernacle of meeting was Moses' tent. It was not the normal tabernacle. God's Spirit had completely left that. So it says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. Now that is significant. Moses recognizes God's Spirit has left the camp, and so he says, well, I'm going to leave the camp too. God's presence was more important to him than family, than friends, than Israel itself. And so he said, if it's going to come to a choice between Israel and God, I'm going to choose God. And Hebrews 13, 13 says, we must have the same attitude. It says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So this is a sign of revival, recognizing God's absence and being willing to leave anything in order to have his presence. So continuing to read in verse 10, I mean verse 7, Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp. That's how far God's presence had removed. It was far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So Moses' house now became the place where people would meet with God. Uh, God wasn't even present at the normal uh, tabernacle. It was just like the church of Laodicea. He was outside, outside the camp, inviting people. So it was a house-based uh, prayer meeting. And what God was doing is he was stirring the hearts of the people. And that verse I just read, and they were desiring God's presence just like Moses was. They went outside the camp to this, uh, this uh, tabernacle of meeting. They wanted the life giver himself. Verse 8. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. Now, they hadn't done this earlier. They had just gotten used to God. I mean, he was there. There was a glory cloud uh, that was a pillar of smoke by day. It was fire at night. It was just an awesome miracle that they had day after day after day. They just got used to it, and they took God for granted. But uh, now it was a, a different uh, situation. They felt his absence dearly, and they longed for him to return. Verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. And that is so remarkable. Joshua was a young man uh, with such a passion to know God that all sense of time and space disappeared, and he was just caught up in the presence of God. It, 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 it's what the Puritans longed for. This is what they pursued in their lives. They were academics. There's no doubt about that when you read their books. But it was an experiential theology. You read Joel Beakey and his analysis. He's one of the greatest uh, Puritan experts. But he said that's the difference between a lot of the modern uh, reform scholastics and the Puritans. Theirs was an experiential uh, theology. It was not a dry theology at all. This is what John Owen wrote about in his marvelous treatise called Of Communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation. 
where the saints' fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost unfolded. Don't you love those long Puritan titles? Amazing title, but I tell you, that treatise was an amazing treatise. When I read that treatise, it made my heart long for more of God's presence in my life. In fact, one of the reasons I'm even preaching this is because it made me sense how much my own life lacks God's presence. I need revival. I want revival, not revivalism. I want the presence of God in our church powerfully. I want it in my life. We can't create it. We can't stir it up, but we can plead with the Lord. Lord, give us revival. This was the heart longing of the Puritans. <clears throat> now, unfortunately, this concept of revival <clears throat> is scoffed at by a lot of uh, Reformed people. When they describe revival, what they're describing is revivalism, and they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The Puritans did not do that. Uh, in Richard Sibbs's marvelous treatise, uh, A Fountain Sealed, he said, if you have ravishing joy and that's your focus, you, that's revivalism. You're, you're seeking, I want ravishing joy, but you don't have holiness, you don't have a hunger for God's word, then you've got a counterfeit produced by Satan. And he points out, uh, there's a lot of scriptures say that Satan produces counterfeits of everything that God gives because he wants to draw you away from the Holy Spirit. So he can give counterfeit tongues and counterfeit prophecy and counterfeit joy and counterfeit, you know, all of these things. So he said, if that's your focus, then you don't have genuine revival that you are pursuing after. But he said, when you've got, you've got that ravishing joy together with the Word of God and an overwhelming hunger for God's holiness and such an overwhelming sense of your unworthiness, he said that's an indication you've got gospel joy, gospel comfort, gospel revival. Now the Puritans did indeed distinguish between revivalism, uh, what uh, most modern ideas on revival have become, and genuine revival. Uh, Thomas, uh, uh, he spends page after page um, describing the difference between what he calls um, enthusiasm or enthusiastical, uh, what do you call it? Enthusiastical fancies, I think is one word for it. It's hyper-emotionalism and genuine revival, but he also spends page after page describing the incredible beauties uh, of, uh, of entering into the presence of God. He was not opposed to emotion, but his focus was not on emotion. His focus was on the Lord God. And that is what I'm holding out before you this morning. Not emotionalism, but a revival anchored in God's Word, focused on the Lord God Almighty. I think it's what made the Puritans so great and so holy and so practical and so pastoral in their ministry. Uh, if you've not read the Puritans, you really ought to. Throw away the modern books. Well, not all of them, but the, the Puritans, they've got such a deep walk with God, and you can see it in their writings. Even though they're academics and sometimes it's hard to read their writings, you can see the passion uh, just coming out of the page uh, from their hearts. 
And it's so, such a contrast to the sterile academics of so many modern uh, Reformed uh, theologians. Too many people in the modern church have no idea of whether God is with them or not. All they have is a theology about God. And I suspect that if Jesus were telling us what his view of the church would be, it'd be very similar to what he said to the church in Laodicea. I'm not even in that church. I'm standing outside the church giving an invitation of revival. And he would say, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the only way that Christ said he would enter through those doors and bring revival to that church is through repentance. And that's the third mark of genuine revival. He told Laodicea, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. The prelude to his presence is repentance. It's just as simple as that. And in Exodus 33, God told Israel that without full-hearted repentance, they would never again enjoy his presence. Now, it's interesting. He told them that he would give them the land of Canaan. He said, I'll go before you and I'll send my angel before you and I'll make sure you inherit the land of Canaan, but I'm not going to go up with you. I am sick to death of Israel. I will not be in your midst. And uh, this is what really distressed them. And I think this is, this is something that we, we ought to examine ourselves on. He said, I'll bless you. I'll give you all of the things, but I will not be with you. And they mourned. Are we content with outward blessings, with success in evangelism, with uh, financial success and other things like that, or do we mourn when we do not sense God's presence with us? That's a true sign uh, uh, of genuine revival when you've got everything except for you don't have, you don't sense God's presence, and you're mourning despite the fact that you have uh, everything else. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 33. And verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people he says i'll make sure that you get up to the land i'll go before you but i'm not going to be in your midst i am sick of israel and israel mourned at those words they found them extremely distressing and they repented they finally came to a realization that life no matter how good is empty if you do not have the presence of almighty god with you you do not have the tokens of his presence they began to realize it doesn't do any good to have a land flowing with milk and honey if God is not there. So revival begins when the church realizes that nothing could be more serious than to lose God's presence. And what it does is it stirs up Israel uh, to, to repent. The fourth mark of revival is to see people not just recognizing God's absence, but longing, longing for his presence. So you've got a recognition of their true need. 
You've got, second, a recognition that God has departed, third, deep repentance, and then fourth, longing for a restoration of God's presence. When we see people no longer satisfied with things, with programs, agendas, evangelism, outward success, and mourning, uh, we've got something significant going on. I am not impressed at all when a 9-11 happens and suddenly you've got Americans all over the place repenting. That's a foxhole kind of a Christianity. There's no evidence that that is a genuine repentance. I'll begin to believe that revival is present or may be present when you see people weeping over their sins, repenting over their sins despite the fact that everything outwardly looks like it's going okay. Uh, one Reformed book on revival said this, the question is not, are you living a good life? Are you happy? Are you active in church work, in evangelism, in Christian reconstruction, in pro-life activities? The question is this, is God with you? Is he in your life? Can you see signs of his presence with you? Is God living with you day by day, giving you strength and joy? What are your personal dealings with God? Do you have any? Do not blame someone else. Look to your own heart and cry for God to return. Do you long for God more deeply? This is the essence of what it means to have a burden for revival. I don't think you could have a person who was more patient, more godly, more close to God than Moses was, and yet this revival produced the same thing in Moses. It was producing in the people. It was to a greater extent than Moses, but it produced the same a thing in him. Prior to this, Moses, uh, God had continually talked to Moses face, by, uh, uh, face to face, but what was Moses longing for? Chapter 33, verse 13 tells us, and Gary read this earlier. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight. That verse makes it very clear. Moses was not satisfied. He wanted to know God more deeply. What was it that Paul said was his chief desire, his chief goal in life? He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, if, if Paul already knew God, which he did, why does he say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection? Well, the reason is that when you once taste of God's presence in that way, you long for more and more and more and more of God. You are not satisfied with anything less than continuing to press deeper into Him. Paul said he even wanted to know God and the fellowship of His sufferings. He wanted to know more of Jesus in all of His life. And that's the whole point of Paul's prayer in verses 15 through 17. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. He's in effect saying, Lord, I don't care if you fulfill any of the promises you have given to us. I don't care about the blessings. I don't care about Canaan. I want you. I want you. He wanted the, 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 the giver of the blessings more than the blessings themselves. The giver more than the gifts. And that's a sign of the presence of revival. In verse 17, God says, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. He was telling Moses, okay, I'll grant your request. I'll come back into the camp. I will be present in your midst. You will see me present with you. Well, Moses still wasn't satisfied with even that uh, 
and really you can't be. When revival is present, it is impossible to be satisfied with anything less than more. Okay, you've got to have more of God. So he says, please show me your glory. Now God had already shown Moses so much, so much on the mountain there. But he says, please show me your glory. It's like an addict who, who, who cannot stop. He's got to have more and more of God. And you know the story of how God shows Moses such glory that his face shines. When Paul comments on that in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that this longing to see more of God's glory, this being transformed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory, is really the essence of revival. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 3. And it really is a strange coexistence. When you read the biographies of what went on during these revivals, it's a strange coexistence of this fear and trembling and nervousness almost of the fire of God's holiness and yet this longing to press deeper and deeper into that consuming fire of God's holiness. The two seem to dovetail together. And so this is the definition of biblical revival. Do you long for God's presence? Or is it only God's blessings that you want? The beginnings of revival could care less about outward blessings. They could care less about getting Canaan. You could take them all away and they still would be enraptured with joy at having rediscovered uh, God's presence with them. What they really care about during revival is getting to know God and knowing Him ever better. Here's what the psalmist wrote. As the deer pants for the water brooks, So my soul pants for God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The psalmist is not after more blessings. He's after God himself. In his book on revival, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks, Do we know anything of such longing? We may have been Christians for many years, but have we ever really longed for that same personal, direct knowledge and experience of God? Oh, I know, we pray for causes, we pray for the church, we pray for missionaries, we pray for our own efforts that we organize, yes, but that's not what I am concerned about. We all ask for personal blessings, but how much do we know of this desire for God himself? That is what Moses asked for. Show me thy glory, take me yet a step nearer. It is the same thing, of course, as the psalmist voices in Psalm 42. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. That is what he wants. He wants the living God himself, and that is why he pants and thirsts. And so the prayer for revival is a prayer for the manifestation of the glory of God individually and collectively. And the rest of the things that I've listed in your outline, they just flow out of this great point, okay? When sin hinders, hinders our fellowship with God, what do we do? We cast our sins away. It doesn't matter how small, how trivial, how big the sin might be. We don't want anything to come between us and God. Even if it's embarrassing to confess our sins to others, we do, we do it because we don't want anything to allow God's absence uh, to be there. And so that is a sure sign of God's sovereign work of inward revival. And it's my prayer that... This may be true in our congregation more and more. 
The fifth mark of revival is being consumed with a desire for God's reputation. And we see that in verses 9 through 12. And I want you to notice it's not just being consumed with a rep, uh, for God's glory, but it's a holy passion for God's people. Gone will be the critical spirit over sin. Instead, there's going to be a groaning over the church's sins, such as you see in the groanings of Moses in, in, in these chapters. Like David, we'll be able to say in Psalm 119, verse 136, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. So here's a question to ask yourself. Has the Spirit of God ever caused you to groan over the sins of our culture? Groan over the sins in your family or groan over your own sins? If not, pray for revival. It's always been one of the signs of genuine revival, and it's impossible to be careless about the lost either when there is revival. In chapter 32, verse 32, Moses says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. God gives him such a passion for the lost that just like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, he says, Lord, if it takes me going to hell, send me to hell so that they might be saved. That's not something I can concoct within myself. That's not something you can raise up. It's something only God's Spirit can engender in the human heart because we want self-preservation. But God's Spirit, when He is poured out, we lose all sense of self-preservation. We are consumed with His glory. We are consumed with a passion to see His, his kingdom extended, to see the lost of being brought in. So these are some of the supernatural marks that make it very easy to distinguish genuine revival from modern man-centered revival. Now we're going to sing two songs which will let you express your heart on this theme. And uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different after the first psalm. In the New Testament, uh, the, in the synagogues, you'll find that men would stand up and they would pray. Uh, and uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to do that immediately after the singing uh, of this song. But let, let, let's sing uh, meditatively before the Lord as the deer. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Alone are my heart, desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire.
let's go ahead and spend some time in in prayer for personal revival <clears throat> and revival for our families and churches and you can pray silently or uh, if uh, you feel led of the lord you can stand up and pray just where you're you're at but uh, let's go to the lord in prayer I'm not going to go in depth on the last four intermarks of revival, but let me just at least briefly mention them, maybe read a, a scripture or two. The sixth mark of revival is longing for a restored testimony of the church before an unbelieving world, and I'll just read chapter 33, verses 15 through 16. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And I want you to notice that phrase, how will it be known? Moses longed for God his testimony to be known through his presence in the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 14 or something like that, says when the, the reality of God's presence is there, the unbeliever will come in. He will fall down and know that God is present with us. The next mark of revival is a longing for the silencing of God's enemies, uh, verses 11 through 12 of chapter 32. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. So he was concerned about God's testimony. Uh, in the eyes of the world. The eighth internal mark has already been, I think, adequately dealt with, a desire to know God and His work more fully. The last internal sign of revival is a uh, renewed appetite for the teaching of God's Word. Uh, take a look at uh, chapter 34 and the beginning to read at verse 27. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. 
And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he went out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. So God established within Moses a desire to preach every word that God had given, and he put into his people a desire to listen to every word that Moses was preaching. Now, the truncated preaching of uh, most modern uh, revivalism is quite different from this. This is preaching the whole counsel of God. It glories in God's Word. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And during uh, revivals, you've got a renewed passion for this. Uh, Verse 35, And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, Then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And then continuing in chapter 35, verse 1, Then Moses gathered all the uh, the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. And you've got Moses basically giving the rest of the Pentateuch. When people are only given to mysticism, you know you don't have genuine revival or even the potential for a, a, a genuine reformation. Uh, When they are given a renewed appetite to study and apply all God's Word, then you've got hope, okay? You've got an idea that uh, revival may be present. Now, let's look quickly at the outward marks of revival. The first outward mark of every revival that I've studied is that God gives one man a burden to pray, and here uh, he gives Moses this deep, deep intercession in chapter 32, verses 30 through Um, uh, 32 and then we see ongoing prayer of Moses day after day in chapter 33 verses 7 through 11 and that's one of the things that God does in revivals down through history lays on uh, on some man woman or in one case it was a child it's such a deep burden for revival that they are drawn into prayer for three days prior to uh, the, the great awakening in New England under Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards could not sleep 24 hours a day for three days without eating or drinking. He was crying out before the Lord, give me New England, give me New England. He was praying with intercession. In the Welch revival, it was a timid young girl who could hardly talk. All she could say was, how I love Jesus. And in Germany, it was a deacon who just organized prayer. You just see people burdened for prayer. And uh, so God usually begins with that, and maybe God will sovereignly use one of you, you know, to stir up revival in our nation. The second outward mark is that as the person prays, God's Spirit comes upon his prayer in such power that others are drawn into the circle with the same concern and the same burden. It's almost like it's a nerve center, you know, and going out from this prayer meeting, there's life-giving waters that impact uh, entire community. Uh, entire uh, nation sometimes and um, the second half of verse 7 it says and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting which was outside the camp and you see God stirring up hearts Uh, verse chapter 35 it says then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose heart was willing I love that phrase whose heart was stirred it's like God's got a big paddle you know he's stirring in the heart and and causing the heart to activate and to desire to pray in chapter 36 again whose heart was stirred now Moses did not call them out to that prayer meeting 
That's the interesting thing. In fact, he made it as hard for them to come out to that prayer meeting as he could. Well, I guess he didn't. God did. <laughs> you know, the prayer meeting was far distant from the camp. It was as inconvenient as you could possibly make it, and yet God stirred many people to go out there and to desire to pray. So this is not something I can stir up. We elders... Uh, we, it's our great hope that God will do a work, a mighty work in our congregation as we devote this whole next year to prayer. But w even if we plan, only God can stir up the kind of prayer that you see in, in revivals. And it may be an indication that you know, our church is in desperate need of revival. The next outward mark is that even those who are not at the prayer meetings are impacted positively as cultural reformation begins to happen. And chapter 33, as a result of this united prayer, uh, the power of God's presence was undeniably felt by both believer and unbeliever. Yeah, there were even unbelievers that were positively impacted and who were even worshiping uh, God there. What happens is that Moses and God receive a renewed respect uh, in, in the entire nation. Uh, we've seen that people who sought God went out to the tent, but I want you to look at what happens to those who don't go out to the tent. Even they are impacted. Uh, look at chapter 33, verses 8 through 10. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So radiating out from that prayer meeting as a powerful moving of God's Spirit throughout the homes and the districts and the entire nation. People are changed. There's a new reverence for God. There's a new uh, a focus upon the presence of God uh, that, they, that they see, even though it's outside uh, of their camp. Uh, the profound change in England and America as a result of the First Great Awakening is documented by many. It affected the police departments and businesses and politics and children and spouses and every area of life. It was the beginnings of a small reformation. And uh, a lot of people who talk about that say it wasn't just a revival, okay? It was the beginnings of a reformation. In fact, some people say if that first great awakening had not happened in England, that probably England would have fallen to a bloody revolution just like France had. And uh, many people feel that was the preparatory work of God's Spirit to make America an independent uh, nation. So it had a profound impact as revival spread into reformation. Fourth, there is always someone like Joshua who's going to be specially gifted by God to continue in prayer without ceasing, especially during the initial days, uh, stages of the revival. They've got a gift of intercession. I've seen this in every single uh, revival. They pray nonstop. Now, everybody was drawn to prayer, but Joshua's praying around the clock. It's just a nonstop, something that consumes him. And... Um, when you see that happening, you see, okay, there's probably revival happening. Verse 11, again, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. And I am encouraged that there are the tiny beginnings of this in various parts of America where there are ministries 
that have such a burden for prayer that they have established 24-7 round-the-clock prayer meetings where there's never a stop to prayer. People go in shifts. Uh, forget Some places it's 12-hour shifts. Sometimes it's 6-hour shifts. Can you imagine praying for 12 hours? I have a hard time praying for 2 hours. But uh, these people are burdened by the Lord, crying out to God. Well, the fifth external mark of revival is that repentance results in changed lives. If so-called revival does not lead to holiness, does not lead to at least some cultural change, it is counterfeit. God brings revival to make people love His law, to love His holiness, to reflect His holiness. And revival transforms entire communities, uh, lowering crime rates and outward manifestations of uh, of, uh, gross sin. And you don't see that in the Pensacola Revival. You don't see it in the Brownsville or the Toronto revivals. But down through history, over and over, uh, that has been the case. And what I want us to do right now is I want us to sing a scripture where God promises to bring revival and reformation to his people if they will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. But before we sing it, let me just offer up another prayer to God. Our Father, we approach you once again in the strong name of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, uh, you promised Jesus, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We thank you that in Revelation you extend that promise to us. And we do agree with Christ in asking that all pagan nations would be given to him. We, we long to see his glory extended to the ends of the earth. We long for our nation, for our city, to bow its knees before you. And since this is your desire and your promise as well, we ask in faith that you would cause revival to break out in Omaha and Council Bluffs and Bellevue and other cities around here. If we, if we can be used to that end, then use us, Lord. But we do not seek our own glory. We seek you. We want to know you and the power of Christ's resurrection. So please, fill us with your spirit. Sweep out the sin from our lives. Give us a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And as we sing this uh, next song, we humble ourselves before you. We ask that you would heal us and heal our land. Move by your spirit in our midst, O God. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
Well, I'm going to finish off this sermon by quickly looking at God's answer to Moses' prayer. And the answer actually starts happening in chapter 33, but God gives more in chapter 34, and then even more remarkable things happen in chapter 35 and through the end of the book. And um, they just become unbelievably generous in their giving, joyful in their work. Uh, they really are being transformed. And I say it's a partial answer because God tells Moses that there is no way that he can see his face and live. Um, in, in our bodies here, there's only so far we can press into God. And he tells the people there's only so far they can come close to him and uh, still live. And so prior to heaven, uh, there's only a partial manifestation of this revival that we're longing for. Secondly, Moses may have been praying for a manifestation of God's power, but in chapter 33, verse 19, God says something different. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. We need God's goodness much more than we need uh, his uh, power, even though we do need his power as well. But if we are mistaken about God's goodness, his character, his attributes, we're going to become mistaken about everything else. And this is one of the things that cults have messed up on. They mess up on the theology of God, and it impacts uh, their practice. And so we've got to know about God before we can know Him and not be deceived, you know? We've got to know about Him. Flee from any revival that downplays doctrine. And we see this all over the place. It's, it's, it's Jesus, no doctrine, you know? It's no creed but the Bible, no. Uh, flee from any revival, so-called revival, that downplays doctrine. We must know about God uh, so that we are not deceived in our pursuit of him. The third response of God was to proclaim his name, and his name was not Benny Hinn, and his name was not Brownsville. Uh, when true revival happens, personalities really completely fall into the background, and God comes into the foreground. Uh, people, they don't even notice the, the servants of God. All they're noticing is God himself. Chapter 34, verse 5 says, now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. The proclamation of God's name is really proclaiming who he is, what he stands for. And so the next two verses explain what proclaiming the name of the Lord means. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So those two verses sum up the meaning of God's name to his people. It's as we embrace God and know him more and more that we begin to experience his glory and we ourselves are changed. In fact, uh, when Paul takes this chapter and he applies it to revival, he says this is really what the essence of revival is about in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, and that's revival, rev turning us back to him, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul is saying, you're not trying to live the Christian life. That's not what 
Uh, that's not what revival is about. It is being consumed by God, and it's as we focus upon Him, we come into His presence, that we become more and more like God. So everything else flows from God. Concern for missions, concern for the church, sensitivity to sin, all of those things flow from a knowledge of God. And I won't take the time to develop the points, but point D shows a revelation of God's glory. This is God's goal for human history, to reveal His glory more and more. Well, since that's the essence of revival, that means His goal for human history is to have more and more revival, more and more reformation, so to speak. So to me, this is encouraging. Revival is not just a thing for the past. This is an ongoing reality that's going to be a part of His plan for all of history. Point E was uh, the restoration of God's presence and power with His people. God's glory cloud came back into the camp, and God blessed Israel with victory after victory and manifestations of His power. Now, this is encouraging to me, too, because God says in Isaiah that this is His goal, actually even more so than this, is His goal for human history to have His presence so manifested. So Isaiah takes the imagery of the glory cloud and says instead of it being in one place it's going to be in every house and in every assembly of Christians let me read that for you then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a covering So that image speaks of his goal for new covenant history to dwell in God's presence hour after hour, day after day, year after year. A glory cloud above every dwelling place, above every uh, uh, assembly of believers like here. Restored presence, restored fellowship, restored Christ-likeness. That is what our hearts should be longing for. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that our hearts would hunger to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for having given us salvation, having given us the Son, and for your promise in Romans that having given us the Son, will you not also with him freely give us all things? And so we pray that you would freely pour out upon our assembly a spirit of prayer and supplication, the repentance that is needed in every aspect that is needed for us to enter into revival and reformation. And may you receive the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.